All right, welcome back to another episode of Creedle. I am joined today again uh, for the second time in uh, the last six weeks or so uh, by Serena Sigalito, who is the editor of Public Discourse. Serena, welcome back to Creedle. Thanks so much for having me. Definitely. No, I'm excited. To, I'm, I'm excited to have you on. Uh, you've been just writing a bunch in addition to your work as the editor of Public Discourse. I know that you're doing a lot of writing for various publications. Uh, and I refer people who are watching this or listening to this to go back and listen to my previous episode with Serena and Leah Labresco, in which we talked about some of these ideas surrounding what we call new feminism or neo-feminisms. I think the title of that episode is Towards a New Feminism. Um, but it was a really good discussion, and uh, Serena had some really good ideas there. I, I have since read some additional work of hers that I wanted to to bring her on and talk to her about. But just by way of reintroduction, Serena is editor of The Public Discourse, which is the journal of the Witherspoon Institute in Princeton. She recently completed Robert Novak Journalism Fellowship, which focused on contemporary American women's experiences of work and motherhood. And I think we'll talk about some of those ideas today because a lot of her recent writing comes from her research there. She's a graduate of, of the University of Dallas, uh, and the Catholic University of America, where she received her MA in English. And in addition to writing for the Public Discourse, of course, where she is editor, she also writes for Newsweek, America, the American Conservative, First Things, National Review, and more. So anyway, Serena, with all of that aside, thank you for coming back on. Yeah, thanks for having me. So I, I was uh, attracted to your recent print feature for America. I think it was your first print feature, for, so congratulations on that. Thanks. Right on the cover of America <laughs> magazine, it, it had you as one of the title stories, so that's pretty cool. Um, and I read that piece. It was very good and very compelling because you explored some of your research talking to women who are working and being moms in America mm -hmm. uh, and also talk to them about how their their formation, their upbringing shaped their ideas about women and motherhood and career. Uh, and so I think the the sort of intersection of all of those was really important. But one of your takeaways in that piece was that and I'll read here a quote you said, it is important to listen to and learn from the stories of women who have been harmed by both traditionalist and modernist distortions of the church's teaching. Mm -hmm. And as I read that, I was, of course, nodding along. Um, but I'm certainly not as familiar as you are with how those distortions have impacted women. So I'm wondering if you can share a few examples. I think it's very common in in Catholic theology, in in thinking about how theology applies to culture, it's very common that we find that the ideal really is this Aristotelian mean between extremes, mm -hmm. right? That there are distortions on both sides. And so I'm wondering if you can talk on the one hand about traditionalist distortions of a conception of women, womanhood, uh, motherhood, feminism, and on the other side of modernist distortions. How do those harm women? How, do, how have we seen that happen? Yeah, I mean, so that that piece came out of some really interesting discussions that I had actually within a, a Facebook group of UD moms, um, alumna from my college, or alumni, I guess. <laughs> um, and it was after um, Amy Coney Barrett was nominated to the Supreme mm. Court, and there was right. such a firestorm around that. Yeah. And so there was a particular piece in the New York Times that sort of was criticizing um, evangelicals and, um, and kind of painting traditional or orthodox Catholics with the same brush, saying that we were kind of hypocritical for, you know, going rah, rah, Amy Coney Barrett, but actually right. really keeping women down. Um, I remember that piece. Yeah. Yeah. Rather, so, rather unfair for several reasons, I think, but, but yeah. not entirely. So, yeah. There, I think there's something there, but I think she's overgeneralizing a lot because I was sort of like trying to check my gut reaction, which was like, excuse me, <laughs> you know, right, like right. The, the Catholics I know are not like this. Um, but I wanted to see, like, it, it felt like there was something there. And especially because, you know, as I was speaking with people, some, some people really did resonate with this and really mm -hmm. felt like that was true to their experiences. Um, 
And so I was just really interested because, um, you know, the author of that op-ed was coming from an evangelical background. Um, and I okay. think sort of just sort of projecting the evangelical Painting experience. with a broad brush, right? Right. Yeah. And so yeah. what I think is just really interesting about Catholicism is that, that we have all of these different subcultures um, and different charisms and all this stuff. And some of that is really good and beautiful, healthy diversity, you know, yeah. um, but some of it is not, <laughs> you know. Um, right, and so, right. And so that's where I was sort of trying to delve into the ways where we can get things wrong on either end of the spectrum. Um, so, you know, some of the women I talked to, um, you know, I couldn't fit everyone in that piece, but even just the ones who were sure. quoted in that piece, you know, things like um, women being told that they uh, should not pursue a career, you know, is an obvious one, but, and sort of, even if, if education was encouraged, it was um, only, it was, you know, explicitly said, you know, this is only for so that you can homeschool your kids sort of thing. Right. Um, this is only to help you be a better mom and homeschool teacher. <laughs> yes. And the most, the most painful one, you know, I was really thankful for this, this one woman who um, opened up to me quite a bit about her experiences in a really a fundamentally abusive home situation mm. um, where, you know, she was part of a covenant Catholic community. Her, their family was in Arizona growing up um, somewhat one that was, um, connected to, it, it wasn't People of Praise, which is Amy Coney, Barry, Coney Barrett's, but it was um, sort of a spinoff of it. Um, and in that case, it was like the really, the abusive home environment and um, mm. unhealthy marriage and what what was happening with her dad um, and her was really made worse by the messages that she was getting from the her community. So there were these talks each week that were supposedly, they talked a lot, they used a lot of the language of the theology of the body, um, but it was kind of harnessed in a very controlling way. Like it sounded like a lot of the the purity culture talk, you know, you hear right, right. some of these newer, you know, it, even like 90s, early 2000s. I feel like this was a big movement in the well, evangelical yeah, wearing world. Yeah, purity rings and all yes. that. Yeah. yeah, but there's like, and so like great chastity is great. You know, we want sure, abstinence, sure. no marriage, but it's kind of a dehumanizing way of looking at women, especially um, a lot of the metaphors that are used about, you know, like chewed up gum or yeah, spoiled women. goods. Definitely. Yeah. Right. All of these. I, mean, I was a part of that evangelical subculture, maybe not that specific subculture, but I was yeah. at least like adjacent to that subculture when I was an evangelical growing up in the nineties and early two thousands. Yes. Yeah. And so I think that that, in a lot of communities that sort of spilled over, there was, it, I think it's good to be looking for ways to, you know, see what's good in other religious communities and all of these things. But I think with some of the theology of the body stuff that would like popularization that went on, um, some of the youth leaders in different groups took stuff from purity culture that was yeah. not really grounded in a Catholic understanding of femininity or, of you know, the human person in general or of what sex should be. Um, and so that ended up just being really, really harmful for this one young woman who ended up being sexually assaulted later in, in college. And, you know, she had this kind of light bulb moment where she woke up the next morning and was like, I need to go to confession. And she stopped and she was like, if, if that is a survivor's first thought the morning after being assaulted, like there is something wrong here. Like this is messed up and I need to get up. And so for her, you know, and so she ended up, she's not Catholic anymore, you know? And so it just, it's such a, it's such a tragedy um, to think about 
the ways that this can create such an obstacle to having a loving relationship with God and to knowing that you're unconditionally loved and that, you know, like it's just, um, it can really hurt people. So yeah. yeah. So I characterize that as more of a traditionalist distortion. Um, even though there are some charismatic elements, you know, if you're talking about liturgy or whatever in those communities, but, um, this sort of overemphasis. Yeah. I I do like how you say it's a a traditionalist (laughs) distortion, right? That's not a traditionalist interpretation. This isn't just an issue of, interpreting various mm-hmm. dogmas or doctrine. This is actually an example of, you know, taking one extreme position that actually distorts the truth of what's underlying it. Right. So yeah. it's not about modernist versus traditionalist interpretations of the theology of the body mm-hmm. or of Catholic teaching on sexuality. It's about actually distortions because those things obliterate yeah. or obscure the fundamental truth that they're trying to profess, you know? Right. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's hard with all of these different labels, um, but I just think it's an important distinction that there is, again, like an idea of a healthy diversity and different charisms and different, like, I think there are wonderful, you know, say Latin mass communities who are not sure. distorting the truth or yeah, charismatic well, communities. When you said, but, yeah, when yeah. you said traditionalist, you know, I wasn't mm-hmm. thinking trad. I was thinking, um, you know, because like you said, you know, some of them could be charismatic covenantal communities mm-hmm. and those certainly are not trad. Uh, right. But when you said traditionalist, I was thinking um, of a, a context that, that sort of, um, embraces what would be viewed as traditional gender roles right? Exactly. and then, and then uses that as a sort of a pretext for distorting the truth of Catholic teaching on sexuality. And then that's where you get the the problems that you just talked about. So, yeah. so I think it's helpful to delineate between the traditionalist distortions that you're talking about and trad, you know, and, and I'm, I'm using air quotes here, right. But uh-huh. trad Catholics who go to the Latin mass, because you're not saying those two are the same. I think that's, right. that's an important not clarification. Yeah. 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 And I think a lot of this has to do with the relationship between the church and the surrounding culture. Um, You know, because with this, I think it's a, with what I'm calling traditionalist distortions, I think it's a overly reactionary impulse of pulling back, you know, Mm. and, and I think, so a lot of those are kind of dramatic stories and, you know, things like the one I just told. And so I think that can, maybe get more attention, you know, so this, this was written for America magazine, which is a right. little more liberal leaning in its outlook. Um, yeah, it, honestly, I'm surprised that they've published you as much as they have, but it's, I think it's credit to you for being able yeah. to articulate good ideas in a, in a winsome way. But, but I've been surprised to see yeah. them publishing you so much. It's, it's great. <laughs> yeah, I figure, you know, but I, I want to, I don't want to just be preaching, preaching to the choir, you know? Totally. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I start. I wanted to start with that and affirm that that happens, but I guess my my argument, part of my argument in that piece is that I think it's actually more common to see the other end of the spectrum where Catholic communities are just kind of unthinkingly absorbing and echoing what our culture is telling us right. um, and not questioning the assumptions around things like, uh, you know, a lot of the ideas of second wave feminism, um, especially the embrace of birth control. You know, there's abortion is a little trickier of an issue, you know, that's kind of more obviously wrong. And if you're, although even within Catholic, certain Catholic circles, you can have debates about whether it should be legal out of compassion or different things. Sure, but, yeah. um, but just in terms of the messages that are sent to young women, you know, I, I had a, a wonderful series of conversations with a woman named Sarah Rennekamp, um, who was featured in that article. And I just love her story because I think it's so, um, I don't know, it's sort of, it's indicative of, or emblematic of an of a an arc that I've seen in a lot of people's lives where they grew up in kind of a somewhat bland 
um, Catholic sort of community. nominal Catholic home, right? Right. Yeah. And I mean, they were even pretty like active, you know, they sang in the folk, folk it would go choir. To and, Sunday. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but this sort of teaching that she got there was, she, she described it as mere moralism, you know, that it was like, right. be a good person. Do good and not evil. So you yeah. can go to heaven. <laughs> right. Yeah. And you know, if you believe in Jesus, that's great, but like good people are good, you know, you know, like right. just, um, and so with that foundation, the, the sexual abuse crisis, really shook her because it was like of course yeah yeah if it's all about being a good person and like clearly these are not good people who are in charge of this church you know like there's no yeah. reason to stay if it's not based on a personal relationship with jesus christ and the fact that you know we have the body and blood of christ in the eucharist and you know where else can we go <laughs> that right, to whom right. should we go you know um if that's not there then of course you're going to see the failings of the people who are involved in the church and just say this I'm done with this. You know, this is totally, deeply hypocritical. Yeah. Um, so she f fell away from the church for a long time. Um, and, uh, you know, it wasn't until like her mid twenties after, after college, when she was sort of doing all the things that she had been told, you know, like go out and pursue a career. Your twenties are for you. You should right. just like be selfish, enjoy yourself. Find yourself. Yeah. yeah. You know, um, that though, that finally she it was a really interesting i couldn't fit all the story in this article but it was kind of a crazy story with um you know the she's from wisconsin and like her, their football team won the super bowl and she was like in dc and she's like I, what are people back home doing right now like i wanted to have this like sense of connection with them and she was like it's sunday morning like they'd all be at church oh, <laughs> she yeah. was like yeah. so she like randomly went back to mass and encountered this priest and all this stuff you know um and so and she sort of unloaded in confession was just like telling him all of the the reason she thought the church was wrong and cruel about all of these yeah. things and he was just like those are really good questions and there are answers like if you want to do this we can do this you know yeah um, good for him yeah right so anyway it was a long beautiful story of her coming back to the church and really just uncovering the riches of the church's teaching you know she pointed me in particular to this one essay um, called To Be Someone Radiant, which was a speech about contraception and sort of a, a vision of, of chastity of that's not just about like, don't do this. You know, it's right, about right. growing into who you were meant to be, you know. Um, there's just such a deeper and more attractive vision. Um, so anyway, you know, she had to sort of discover on her own um, the riches of of the church's tradition and also like the beauty of having that relationship with Christ as a person, you know? Um, mm -hmm. So I don't know, that was a really enlightening story for me to think about. Um, and I guess I just lost my train of thought. <laughs> um, well, one thing I was yeah. gonna say is <laughs> if, if memory serves, didn't Sarah encounter a woman named Anne who sort of yes. mentored her and discipled her in the faith? Cause I think that's another, that's a, a sort of, um, an important part of that arc, right, is is right. Uh, another Catholic who can come alongside these young people who are struggling, mm -hmm. and someone who can say, like, I've been in your shoes, I've been where you are, and now I'm, you know, middle aged or maybe a little bit older. I have my own children, I have my own family, I maybe have, a, you know, have my own career, but this is how it's looked for me, and this is right. what it's been, and this is how fulfilling it's been. And I think that's a huge part of that story because so many people who mm -hmm. are in their twenties are sort of floundering and rudderless, and. I mean, I don't know. I haven't been alive at other points in history, but it strikes me that everyone around me is miserable all the time. Mm -hmm. And I think so much of it is because we're trying to, and this goes for men as well, maybe to a lesser extent mm -hmm. uh, on the topics that we're talking about. But, you know, we, we were taught that 
everything needs to be in our career. Like our career is yes. what defines us. And it's not. And so when we buy into that lie and we, we do it and we sink everything into, into our career and we still have very little fulfillment, uh, we're going to be miserable. Mm-hmm. So it's helpful to find those people who can, can mentor us along and disciple us on the path. Yes. Yeah. And she has, um, you know, Anne, I think is still a really big part of Sarah's life and, you know, is a goddaughter to her, at least one of her oh, babies, cool. nice. you know, yeah. um, and just really spiritually mothered her, you know, and was so yeah, receptive to great. her and nurtured her. But I guess the other thing that I wanted to mention that I think is an element of hope, you know, I think about like, oh, isn't it terrible that it was such a thin conception of the faith that was presented to her. Mm-hmm. But the other part to her story is that none of this, the sacraments are real and the grace is still real. And they were like latent within her, like, you know, that sacramental yeah, indwelling of the point. Holy Spirit. And the, it kept yeah. drawing her back. Like she described to me, like she would, wherever she went, you know, she lived in different cities or whatever. She would always just like on her walks, like make a mental note of where the Catholic churches were and look on their signs of like, when is confession? Like, like, are they still doing it? Like, just in case, like, like she didn't have an yeah. actual, she didn't intend to actually go, but it was just sort of this, you know, she talked about it in a way that made me think of um, like in Brideshead Revisited when they talk about like the tug on the string. And it was like something mm-hmm. just like always pulling her back. So I found that kind of comforting that even like, because as a parent, I think it can be daunting to think about like, what if I'm doing it wrong? You know, like what if I'm not forming my kids well enough? Yeah. Um, what if I'm making mistakes even with stuff like purity culture and like yeah. to saying the wrong things to them and all this stuff. But it's also just like so comforting to think about like Christ is coming into their hearts. You are bringing them to church. Like this is not, um, this is not going to waste, you know, yeah. and he's, yeah, yeah your, your children belong to God and he's not going to forget about them. You know? Yeah, it's 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 yeah. not merely perfunctory. It's not merely symbolic. There are actual graces being conveyed right. and communicated. Yeah, I, I was thinking about that. I think his name is Alex O'Connor. I could be wrong on the name, but he 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 has this popular YouTube channel uh, under the name I think it's the Cosmic Skeptic. Um, but he's an atheist, and he has recently done some debates in the Catholic world. He was on Matt Frad's show and debated. Uh, I forget who his interlocutor was there, but he also had a conversation with Bishop Barron recently. Mm. But the interesting thing with this guy is that he was baptized Catholic as a youngster and mm. obviously left the faith. He was never confirmed, but he was baptized. And uh, in the Matt Frad debate that he ho- that he hosted on YouTube, uh, someone commented and just said, like, wow, it's crazy. Alex is already baptized. Just imagine, you know, he could become Catholic and what, what he could <laughs> do for the church. Yeah. And I was thinking about how, you know, that that's a pretty profound comment, actually. Those graces are are working within him and who knows where the Holy mm-hmm. spirit will lead, but those graces are there. And Alex is, you know, he's, I think he's on a journey himself and he's only right. an undergraduate student now. So who knows where he'll be 10 years hence, but, but it's a really good point that those graces are there. And it's important for Catholics to remember that too, because it's not all about us. Right. And you're right that it is daunting to be a parent. We're both parents and I make mistakes every day in, in my parenting and encounter mm-hmm. challenges every day and think, Oh man, I didn't think that this would come up now or I didn't even think about how I would broach this topic or mm-hmm. how I would discipline in this situation, et cetera. And it's tough. And I know I make mistakes. And so we just have to rely on the grace of God to forgive us and to, you know, heal, heal them when we wrong them and to keep coming to them in the Eucharist, in the sacraments, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's a great point. It's a beautiful one. I also wanted to ask you also in that piece in America magazine, you quoted this woman, Dr. Menchaca Bagnulo. I'm sorry if I messed up her pronunciation. <laughs> Um, but she teaches at, I think, Texas State University in uh, San Marcos, Texas, which is halfway between Austin and San Antonio. And she said that growing up, 
she thought she sort of was under the, the perception that being able to be a stay at home mom was a status thing. And I thought that was a really important comment because people in the, in, in Catholic circles frequently think that it's important to have one parent stay at home. And I think that, you know, it's, it's important to have parents at home as much as possible. So I think if you can, then both parents should be home. You know, I think having more parents in the home to do the work of raising children is great. But her, her point is really important because there are a lot of low-income families in America who don't have the luxury of being a stay-at-home parent in, in either the mom's or the dad's case. And uh, if that's true, then often it's more of an economic decision than a preferential one. It's not, mm-hmm. it's not the mom or the dad saying, I don't want to be home with the kids. It's the mom and the dad saying, we can't be home with the kids because we, we have to make money. And so that might look like um, one being home you know, during the day while the other works and the other one going to work when the, the, the second parent is home in the evening or something like that. But it, it puts families in a big bind. And I think that has implications for, for how we craft policy. This, this harkens back to our previous conversation with Leah, but how we craft policy about supporting these people. You know, I think um, some of the discussion about the Romney plan, for example, or even, um, even some of Biden's proposals about how to better support families amounts to yeah, what do you think people are going to do if you stay if you pay them to stay home from work? And I think the answer is like they'll stay home from work, but that's a good thing, right? Like we should want mm-hmm. we should want parents to be home with their with their kids in general. So I thought that was a really important important point that um, the doctor made. I'm wondering if you have any other sort of further elaborating comments on what you think about that. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really interesting because you know, so she's um, Mexican American and she grew up in a more, you know, middle class, like now she's a professor and is sort of moving in, you know, she, she described the the progression of growing up and then um, as a grad student, particularly, you know, she went to Notre Dame and was sort of exposed to all these different, um, more self-consciously orthodox and mm. um, more highly educated, okay. uh, more Caucasian, you know, just different um, Catholic circles than she had grown up in. And it was like, you know, as she was talking about, she was like, you know, nobody had a stay at home mom. Like everybody was Catholic. It was always, it was part of their lives, but it wasn't, uh, you know, culturally that, you know, there were lots of devotions to Our Lady of Guadalupe or different, you know, all these different things going on that was very vibrant, but it was, um, there was never a, like, and also she talked about gender roles as being very, strong like like men were very macho and women you know were they, right, those things right. were there um but that wasn't correlated with working outside of the home like there wasn't a sense that you were a bad mom or that you weren't giving your kids what they needed or these things you know that um if you weren't if if you weren't a stay-at-home mom uh, just because you know maybe partly because that was just not on the table economically for most families um but also like i think just the cultural background, like it is somewhat um, unusual historically, the way that we think about work and family right now, yeah. you know? Um, and it's like, in some ways that like people who are um, very committed to having a stay at home parent are um, again, sort of thinking more traditionally, but in another way, like it's not, they're thinking traditionally within a mo- like a fundamentally modern yeah. or postmodern system, and um, because things these things used to just be much more integrated, you know, mm-hmm. um, yep. it wasn't this strict separation. Um, so, it's just interesting to think about this idea that like you have to be a stay at home mom if you're going to be prioritizing your family versus an idea of 
uh, say the family working together to run a business. Yeah, well, I think yeah. this was this was something you talked about in your recent plow piece. If I'm if I'm keeping the the pieces straight in yeah. my head, but and I'll include links to all of these in the show notes for listeners or viewers. But I think it was in the plow piece that you talked about. You, you interviewed several people who who would say like, look, this this, and in fact, one I think who is working outside of the home. I think she probably works from home, but she's, she's trying to run a small business called like little mix-ins to oh, right. um, help kids with food allergies. And what she was saying is like this whole idea of a nuclear family is a, a new one anyway. Like yes. if you go back in history, there were always people around to help take care of the kids. So no, historically moms have not been 100% devoted to childcare. Moms did other things as well, but you'd have, have grandmothers around or maybe, you know, unwed sisters, etc., mm -hmm. to help take care of children or, just other moms in the community with whom you would live and dads would be home because they would be, you know, primarily farming the land as a means of income or working a trade, plying a trade in mm -hmm. the, in their workshop that was right next to the house, et cetera. So this whole idea of sort of having a career and then drive, you know, driving an hour right. of a commute each way to your office where you sit for eight hours a day um, is a very modern, modern idea. And I thought that was well is illustrated by, I think it was your plow piece. Am I remembering the piece yes. correctly? Yes. Yeah. So yeah, I thought that I thought that was a good point that they that they yeah. made. I guess the Vala one though, because you make a good critique of that, right? Mm -hmm. Like people who advocate for a stay-at-home parent, singular, um, are applying this like traditional concept to a fundamentally modern idea where the two might not really be compatible at all. So what's the yeah. what's the better way to think about that? You know, it's funny. I think a lot I would I was remembering the other day, um are you familiar with Jennifer Fulweiler? Yes, She's definitely. A, yeah. Okay. So yeah, she's she the author of, I think it's yeah. called something other than God, which is kind of her, her yes. conversion account. Uh-huh. And then one beautiful dream and your blue flame. She does like stand up comedy and stuff now. Yeah, <laughs> it's, yeah. been, she, it's been interesting to like watch her. So she, she posted something the other day about like, you know, kind of her OG fans from her early blogging days. And I was remembering, which I, of which I am one. You are. You're an OG, <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I was just remembering some of her blog posts from very early on that, in retrospect, I think really fundamentally shaped the way that I've um, approached our family life and career oh, choices. Cool. Yeah. Um, because she talked so much about this idea of how unnatural it is for us to be like at home by ourselves in this big house with the kids, like just alone, you know, um, in this suburban, you know, we have our yards, we have our picket fences, we sort of, you know, yep. this is a middle class problem, obviously. But, um, you know, and so she was talking about like, when they were making their family priorities about like what jobs they were going to going to choose and where they were going to work and all these things, they budgeted in um, things for, you know, money for childcare. Like that was a non-negotiable, yeah. not, not right. be, so that they could go out and earn more money, but because they're living, we're living in a time where you don't get that for free or you don't, you know, you don't have your mom next door and the same way that you need to budget money to go to the grocery store because you can't go out and hunt and forage. You need to budget money to help create that community if you're not able to, you know, align your life in such a way that you can get that through family or, you know, create communities, which I think totally yeah. is a good goal. But, and she actually ended up being able to have some of her, the grandparents come and move and things like that. So I think that's a good long-term goal to aim for is to create these non-paid webs of caregivers and things too. But sure. in the meantime, I have just sort of been very at peace with the idea of um, not thinking about maximizing financial returns, whether that means like me staying home and my husband earning a lot of money. Right. 
but thinking about it in terms of what is going to create a healthy, healthy family life for us and what's going to give us the support that we need and stable care, other stable caregivers in my kids' lives so that I'm not floundering and isolated and, you know, like yeah, just, sure, totally. yeah. So. Yeah. I mean, I think all of that's true. You know, uh, I, I recently went to, um, actually flew into Philly, uh, close to where you are to visit my dad who lives in New Jersey. And I brought my daughter with me. So it was a, you know, dad daughter trip. Um, she's six and we had a lot of fun on the trip, but driving up to the airport. So we're here in Colorado Springs. We flew out of Denver. So it's about an hour and a half drive up there. And as you get close to the Denver airport, now the Denver airport is really removed from the city. It's like, I don't know, 20 miles to the east of the city. And there's not a whole lot around the Denver airport. But as you're driving out there, there now, I guess, is some stuff around there. There's like these giant sort of artificial communities that have popped up. And it's basically just a sea of houses and like uh -huh. some gas stations and a couple Chick-fil-A's and, you know, fast food restaurants. But it's, it's nothing that, that would resemble, um, you know, a, a European town of the 19th century. Uh -huh. It's very different from that. It's just a bunch of people who, who live there. Um, there's no churches there. They all go somewhere else for their church, presumably there might be some grocery stores, right. But, but to do anything, um, sort of cultural, they have to leave their neighborhood mm -hmm. and do that. Um, and it was just striking to me that, that so many, so many of those people live there, um, separated from their extended family, right. They, those, the houses are small enough. I'm pretty safe in assuming that they don't live with grandparents and aunts and uncles and everything. So they're just their nuclear family there. Uh, the, the people who do work outside of the home, you know, the mom and the dad or mom or the dad um, are driving a pretty long commute to their mm -hmm. workplace for presumably eight hours each day. And then they go to sleep at night, probably like having very little interaction with their neighbors. And I'm not making a moral judgment on those people. This is just the uh, this is the sort of culture in which we find ourselves and the houses that are available for a certain price point, et cetera. But right. we've constructed these edifices in such a way that makes it really hard to have like integrated communities and integrated models of childcare and of family support. And it's just, it's really sad. So I don't know how to, I don't know how to untie that knot, right? It's going to mm -hmm. take really intentional efforts and it's going to take a lot of time to do that because yeah. we've built these structures in such a way that it's, it's hard to, to undo them. Um, so I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, but, yeah. but that was striking to me. Yeah, that's something that I think about a lot. So we're currently in the process of buying a new home, and um, we've been we've been living in the house where we are for seven, almost eight years now. Like we had both of our kids here. We moved in here as newlyweds, you know. Um, yeah. And we just, I mean, we don't really know our neighbors. Like I want to, but it's just the way that it's a super busy road. Like so, we can't really have the kids. We have a big backyard, but a small front yard. You know, like it's just yeah. like we can't really. I've try, you know, it's just not, there's not a existing community to plug into. It doesn't totally. feel like, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, and so that's something that I've really regretted and really longed for. And that was a big, big criteria. Um, when I was, when we were looking and deciding where to move next. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's like, it's really interesting because we've, I'm super excited about the, the neighborhood that we're moving into because Good. nice. yeah, it's just, you know, it's, it's funny because it's like, you know, it's in the Philly suburbs and it's, so it's, um, we consciously did not look at like the main line, which is the yeah. fancier, Very more expensive. <laughs> yeah. Yes, you know, um, and you know, we found that there was this little community that was in a school district that's kind of crappy. <laughs> so the houses are half okay. the price. Yep. Um, yep. but it's like, I, we, there's this little neighborhood where like everybody sends their kids to the Catholic schools and oh, cool. like, and you know, there's just tons and tons of young families because the houses are cheap, but the, they're big old homes that they're you know, well cared for. There's, you know, people walking around. It just feels like 
you know, I, I connected with a mom who's a friend of a friend and I was asking about babysitters and she was like, oh yeah, I could give you, I have four or five numbers in my phone of high school girls within walking distance that I can text to come over and nice, stay with yeah. the kids while we go, to, you know, like, you know. Yeah. so it's like these pockets still exist. Um, but you know, the built environment is really important in that, you know, yeah. um, there's places, you know, there's some interesting work going on with like new urbanism or places mm -hmm. like organizations like strong towns. Um, yep. and so some of that urban planning, urban planning and zoning laws and all of these things, um, are really important. Like it's another kind of sector of public policy and of, um, I don't know, the market that really affects our day-to-day -day lives in ways that I think are not always obvious, but are really profound. Um, so, I mean, I just think that's something really fascinating. And there are people doing some interesting work on that, but I, I am hopeful that that will get kind of more attention. Um, because I do think even generally, generationally speaking, you know, you're talking about everybody being so depressed. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. You know, I was reading a piece recently um, by Dr. Jean Twenge at the Institute for Family Studies. Um, okay. And so she's focusing- Is that the UVA think tank? Yes. Different? Yeah. With Brad okay. Wilcox. Yeah. yeah so yeah. she, um, she did this study. So she wrote a book called iGen a while back that was about okay. Gen Z, um, yeah. and sort of how depressed and isolated they are, but also, you know, like looking at different trends and attitudes toward culture and all these things. Um, and it was really interesting because over the pandemic, they were the one, she did this study about mental health, um, and, you know, had very, a lot of people reporting and stuff and in the different age groups, Gen Z was the only one that actually increased um, their levels of happiness um, oh, wow. and decreased depression. All these yeah, it was super interesting mm -hmm. because and to her, her, you know, hypothesis for why that is, is like, A, they were sleeping more because they didn't have to get up and okay, yeah. go to school, yeah. you know, and yeah. sleep is like a huge predictor of mental health problems, a lack of sleep. Um, for young people, especially. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then the second one is that they were spending more time with their families. Um, oh, wow. and so it's like this and she, and talking like some of the qualitative interviews she did, like the ways that they talk about even relationships, like they talk about, it's like the fear of catching feelings, um, mm. or these, you know, like there's, um, having been on social media from such a young age, it's like, if you have one slip up, your whole life can be ruined. Yeah. Isn't or that terrible? Open, yeah, no. yeah. And so I, I think wanna, it's I want to keep my on social media as long as I possibly can. Agreed. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, so anyway, it's just yeah. interesting because I think. I mean, technology plays into that. And I think people are becoming increasingly aware of the ways that smartphones shape our lives, you know? Um, and I think the physical environment of our homes plays into that too. Um, and I think there's some hunger there because the problem is so dire, you know, that people are realizing like, we can't just go on like this, you know, and we need to yeah. think about ways to make it, our lives better and to actually have communities, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that yeah. sounds really interesting. I'll have to um, I'll have yeah. to touch base with you afterward and see if I can get her on an episode to talk about that because I would love to hear yeah. some more about her research. Um, yeah. As we wrap up, Serena, I know I've got to let you go here shortly, but I want to kind of talk to you about a couple of things, questions that I didn't get to. So first, to tie in the the article in Plow that we were talking about, and then second, your more, your most recent piece in America, not the print feature, but the the second one, um, whose uh, whose title you did not author. <laughs> um, <laughs> You, uh, in Plow, you end by saying that there's this undeniable tension between professional ambition and selfless maternal love, mm -hmm. right? That, that it's that, that, you know, being a mom is a full-time job and that having a successful quote career is a full-time job. And we, we just can't, we just can't pretend there is not a tension there. Uh, right. I mean, I, I think mm -hmm. about Anne-Marie Slaughter's groundbreaking piece 
um, you know, can, can women or why w- women can't have it all or why women can't, why have women it all, still can't have it all. Something like that. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> um, so I think about that, right. I think that tension is just a fact of life. Now men experience that same tension as well. I think we actually need to talk more about, um, about how men need to be more in the home being dads because we often like, they often get, get off scot-free, right? Like nobody's mm-hmm. going to judge a dad for having a really successful quote career in which he works 70 hours a week. But people are going to judge women for that because they're going to say, like, why aren't you home with your kids? And like, why, why, why do men get a free pass for that? Right. So that's a, that's yeah. a pet peeve of mine. I think men also experience the same tension, but we also can't deny that women are like more often the victims of that tension, I think. Um, and then the, the second one to tie into that is your piece in America talks about how, um, openness to life isn't just about contraception. It also should characterize our congregations and our communities. So to wrap these two sort of insights into a question and to tie back to what we were just talking about, right? What is it, what does it practically look like, right? For listeners, viewers who are listening to this, like nodding along with us saying like, we're all totally correct. This is, this is great stuff. What does it practically mean for us to be open to life, not just as like couples, but also as, you know, single people in the church or families who are um, past childbearing age and want to be open to life for other young couples and families or pastors or, uh, you know, you name it. Um, and how do, how do we help women navigate that and, and men, but I mean, primarily women, cause that's what you were writing about. How do we help women navigate that tension between professional ambition and, and family life? Yeah, that's a really good and complex question. <laughs> um, yeah. I guess I want to start by addressing that idea of the the tension between the two and where it comes from and kind of the relative effect on sure. men and women. So I'm currently reading a book called Mom Jeans by Abigail, Abigail Tucker, who's the wife of Ross Douthit, if you're familiar with his work. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Is this, yeah. is this her newest one? Yes. It just came yeah, out like a week or two this. ago. Okay. It's, I'm only, you know... I think I'm like 20% of the way through according to my Kindle. Because right. <laughs> um, her previous book was like a okay. history of the house cat or something. Yes. It was something really yeah. sort of off the wall. Yes. I guess she's like yeah. a science journalist. I hadn't really been familiar okay. with her work, but I'm loving this book. Um, I assume this is Jean's G-E-N-E-S, but obviously a yes. play on like mom jeans. Okay. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. So, but it's really fascinating because she, she's talking about how fundamentally um, the experience of bearing a child rewires your brain. Like, yeah. you know, and it... Um, you know, she's talking about trying to untangle this idea of a maternal instinct, um, which she distinguishes from like the idea that you should magically know what to do or how to take care of a baby, which is not it, but is this drive to like need to be there. Um, And you're, you know, women's brains are just totally rewired. Like if you look at the pleasure centers are like totally flipped and you're rewarded. Like, yes. So it's just, um, so it's really interesting. So that is like happening no matter what, like, hormonally, physically to mom's brains, it's changing. Um, but it was really interesting when she was talking about men because men's brains will also change. Um, but it's, there's a big divergence. Like if men are not around, their brain scans look just like a non-dad. Um, <laughs> yes. like, you don't even have kids, yeah. Right, you know, but if they're involved parents, like their hormone levels change, they're like, they're all yeah. of these physical and they're like the same sorts of tests that they do with moms with like recognizing the smell of their baby versus other babies or the cry of their baby versus other babies and the, like the fear, you know, the the ways that they respond to different types of cries. Um, Men become much more sensitized um, almost to the levels that a, a, that a mother does, but only with 
exposure to the child. Like they have to be in the home right, for that right. change to happen, you know? So it's a much more like they get, they kind of can choose like they versus women, you know, uh, it just happens whether you want it to or not, yeah. you know? Um, cause it's, cause it's strictly biological. Whereas the, the man's right. like, has to have sort of like environmental stimuli to accelerate it or catalyze right. it. That's so interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So that, I think, that honestly yeah. gives me hope just to interject real quick. That gives me hope yeah. for men coming out of the pandemic world yeah. where like they've been forced to be home and be around their kids. So like maybe, maybe something yeah. will just, will, will, will shift just a little bit and we'll have more engaged dads coming out of that. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I definitely think there's cost for hope for that. And it's just, it's just yeah. so fascinating, you know? So I think, um, so first of all, just being more aware that that's what's happening. You know, it's hard. We have all these different scripts around motherhood, you know? Um, and, uh, you know, so in terms of practical support, you know, just realizing how intense and life-changing, you know, especially the first baby. Um, but every time a baby enters a family, you sure. know, things, practical things, you know, like I love uh, meal trains, you know, like, because you're always like, um, you know, oh, let me know if I can do anything to help or whatever. Yeah, yeah totally. But, but then that puts the onus on the mother who's floundering and whatever and to text you and ask you, which is an uncomfortable right. thing to do, you know, right. versus- Yeah, like, hey, can you get yeah. me dinner tonight, please? Right, <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah. So I, I really like, uh, meal trains are one practical thing that I like to just set up and, you know, if in advance you can get a list of emails. Totally. Yeah. We try to do the same thing. Yeah. Exactly. Great. Yeah. And so we've been the recipient of it too on the other side. So we love it. (laughs) Yeah. And it makes you, you know, like food is just very, everybody needs to eat and especially, yeah. yeah, I mean, like if you're breastfeeding, if you're, you know, like this is just essential, you know? Um, so that's one big thing is just, give, give people food, you know? Um, and if you're close enough, like say, can I come over today or, and you know, do your dishes, whatever, you know, like this, these very physical things, if you're, you know, and, um, if you have that level of intimacy with someone that they wouldn't be embarrassed or, you know, but to try to help them not be embarrassed that this is, this is, you want to be there, you know? Um, and yeah. And I think for older mothers too, and like, even I'm realizing I've been having a lot of conversations recently with, young women who are like grad students or um, recent graduates and are kind of trying to figure out their vocation. And, you know, I'm, I'm 32. Like, I don't feel like I have, you know, I'm some wise sage, but like just being open about my experiences of discerning my vocation to marry my husband and the struggles that have, you know, practicing NFP or getting through sleep, you know, like in the relationship things that like all of that stuff, I think, um, it's just, I've realized that it's very helpful to them, you know, and gives them kind of hope and I- an idea of how things could be, you know. So just that kind of mentorship of, of younger mothers or just friendship, you know, is a big thing, um, you know, and not, oh, you know, I, I mentioned, I think in the piece just at church, you know, I, I have a lot of anxiety about my children being badly behaved, <laughs> you yeah, know, totally. um, yeah. which a lot of it is, you know, my own excessive anxiety of worrying about what people are thinking about me or whatever, but sure. it's just so, it means so much to me when somebody clearly views my children's presence there as something good and sees how hard I'm working, you know, instead of yeah. feeling like they hate me for my child running around, or you know, like, right, um, right. so little things like that, as well as, you know, the bigger things we've talked about in terms of like public policy changes and paid family leave or these, all of these things, but just generally, um, being building relationships and trying to be supportive in any way you can of, of putting families first, you know, a, a family time at home and um, trying to help other people center that, um, 
I think is really important. Good. Yeah. Well, those are great closing thoughts. And uh, real quick on the children and mass thing. Uh, I totally am right there with you. You know, Sally and I, like, I don't know, it's very day to day with us, right? So yeah. some days at, at daily mass, our kids will be well behaved and other times they will not. And so like today, for example, I had to take my son out to the car. It was, it was just after, um, just after communion and he was acting out. So I was like, okay, well, if you can't be quiet, we're just going to go to the car. I'm going to buckle in your seatbelt. And we're just going to sit there and wait till mommy and your sisters and brother come out. Uh-huh. And so, you know, that's, that's one tactic, but on another level, I'm kind of happy when I'm certainly happy that we're there, right? Because like you said at the very beginning, I mean, the graces are real. And so yeah. that's great to have your kids there. Uh, but second, it's, it's, I look at it as like humbling for me. Like I don't have it all together as a dad, you know, when my dad, uh-huh. when my kids are like acting out in mass and that's okay. And that's a good thing. Um, but what I also have found people to be like generally supportive. And I also look at it as a way that I can encourage other young families because I've mm-hmm. seen, I have less, I have less sort of, um, self-consciousness about it, I guess. Um, as I've seen other young families, but yeah. you know, I've seen young families who like, as soon as their kid makes one peep, they like rush off to the cry room because uh-huh. they don't want to have any, any noise at all. And then our kids are just sometimes just really, really rambunctious and disruptive. And so I look at it as like an encouragement to other young families too. And that's one way that we can show like, it's okay for your kids to be making some noise. You know, it's totally fine if that happens Uh, and just keep coming, just keep bringing them. And so that's, I think it's another way, like just you doing it and you bringing your kids can encourage other people to bring their kids too. And that's one way that we can be open to life in a very practical way. So yeah. But good, Serena, this is great. Thanks so much for coming on. I appreciate your work as always. Uh, I'll, I'll shoot you an email again in a few months, I'm sure, when I read some more of your work as you keep <laughs> keep writing it out, keep churning it out. Um, and for my listeners or viewers, I'm going to post Serena's recent work in the show notes. So if you want to check out any of the three articles that we talked about, um, please do that. Um, they're great and really thought-provoking. And there's a lot more we could talk about, Serena, but since we're out of time, we'll, we'll call it for now and we'll table some other stuff for later. Uh, so thanks so much for joining me. Thanks appreciate so much it. for having me. I really enjoyed it. All right, good. Well, have a great day. Uh, Good luck on your upcoming move, and we'll talk again soon. Thank you. Sounds good. To my listeners, thank you so much for joining another episode of Creedal. If you have a question for me or a question for Serena, just send me a note, Zach, Z-A-C, at creedalpodcast.com. I'd be happy to send along any questions you have for Serena uh, directly to her. Uh, But yeah, do that. So Zach, Z-A-C, at creedalpodcast.com. And until next time, God bless you. (laughs) 